I can literally see every one of you because you always sit in the same spot. So I pray for you by name. I pray for you by, by row and location. So if I sit in someone else's spot, I might get there first. You might get it. Well, Father, we just give you thanks and praise for full hearts, hearts full of gratitude, hearts full of worship, hearts full of recognition for you and all you are, all you do in our lives, all you've done in our lives, everything you've shown us, everything you've given to us, everything you've taken from us everything you protect us from, every way in which you fight for us. We just give you praise today. We give you thanks, so much thanks, Lord. We give you so much praise. Just be honored in this house. Be blessed by this family. And we continue to pray, Lord, to know you more. We continue to pray, Lord, to trust you more. And we rely on you, Spirit of Truth, to continue to tear down the lies, remove the deceptions. And we look forward to the day of knowing you and seeing you face to face with unveiled faces. And we pray that as we receive your word today that it would be a step towards that. In Jesus' name, amen. Same. Morning, Michael. All right. So we're going to make one little point today. We're going to make one point so that it cannot be confused, so that it cannot be missed, so that it must be heard. And I pray even before we get started, Lord, that you would put a guard on my mouth that only your truth regarding this single revelation would come forth today with clarity, with conviction to accomplish only your will and only your purpose. For your glory, for your namesake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so let's go back to First Peter two or one, Second Peter one, one through eleven. We're talking about God's divine nature and the incredible claim that within the better promises of the more excellent second covenant that we are given invitation and opportunity to partake in his divine nature. 
So if someone wouldn't mind reading 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11, I pray one more time that, Father, your word would sanctify us, that we would do more than just hear it, but that we would be transformed by it as we require your spirit to know these things that are beyond us. We call on the spirit of truth to lead us today into all truth regarding partaking in the divine nature and the things that we must add in order to do that. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Amen that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Mm. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful Amen. in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Mm -hmm. Wherefore the rather, brethren, Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Yeah. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Amen. For so an infant shall be ministered unto you abundantly un into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So um, I think the Lord took us to this passage because it's so practical and it's, and it's laid out so beautifully. Um, to, 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 to teach that the divine nature is available and that we've been given everything necessary to walk in it and that it's by his promises specifically that it's available to us. For me to say, now go, now go walk in that would be very difficult to know what to do, right? And, and, I, and I believe that when the word of God is properly taught, that it's perfect for instruction and training correction conviction and righteousness so that the man of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work right so we should understand that this instruction is practical and applicable and perfect and so if we just stick with what's written especially in a text like this and and, and look at the list of the things that we are to add in order to partake in this divine nature now we got some handles to hold on to and some steps to walk out so i'm super grateful for this um for the where the lord has us right now and 
And um, I'll just uh, quickly remind us that virtuous living really is the first step and foundation of partaking in the divine nature, which makes sense, right? Because it's basically just living life as God prescribes it. So for us to partake in his nature and believe that somehow, some way we could do that, not living life as he instructs would be kind of ridiculous, right? So it's sort of core, sort of foundational, a very logical first step that for us to walk in God's nature, we got to do life as he instructs us to do it, which is precisely why we meditate on the law, meditate on his word, read the Bible day and night, teach it, <coughs> memorize it. It's perfect God-inspired instruction for how this life is to be lived. But it's not enough to just commit to it. We, we, we got to continue to study it. We got to continue to know it. Knowledge is the perfect, logical next step once we each in our hearts commit to living the most excellent life. Knowledge is the perfect next step. Now God gets to define that for us. And only God gets to define that for us. So we go to one source, we go to one instruction, we go to one list of commands. The Holy Writ, as they call it. Once we commit to living virtuously, once we add knowledge, letting God define what that is, then we move to self-control. What's self-control? Controlling yourself. Holy cow. Probably need to look at the Hebrew root to really make sure we get that right. I make fun of that, but it's super important that we recognize that for self-control to be in this list makes it important. It makes it vital, it makes it critical. It's gotta, it's gotta be had, right? And self-control often, as we talked about last week, comes and becomes important at key moments that take place every day of our life, throughout every day, as we, as we walk in this fallen and broken world, we're just going to constantly be put to decisions about how we act, what we do, what we say, all throughout the day. There's constantly going to be opportunities to exercise, exercise self-control, act upon the knowledge we've gained by the word in order to live virtuously. And unless we exercise self-control, having knowledge of what God has said is the most excellent way to live, it doesn't really matter, right? Because the flesh is always the first to show up at every one of those crossroads, at least if you're like me, that's the truth. And it requires self-control to resist the temptation of the flesh. And as Lizzie said, deny, deny self, in order to make the obedient choice. And as we do that over and over and over and over again, 
That's what the Bible calls perseverance, staying the course. Walking this out every day, throughout the day, day by day, from the moment we're born again until the moment we die. I just love how logical this list is, how perfect this list is. It just makes so much good sense to me. I pray it's doing the same for you guys. So when, so when knowledge, self-control, and perseverance come together at key moments throughout the day when we can either choose obedience or disobedience, we, need, we can either be a faithful witness or we can be something other than that. The next thing on the list provides for us the motivation to make the right choice. And this was sort of the, the revelation from last week that I think it's important to go back to just for a minute because I don't know about y'all, but at least for me, godliness and virtuous living can, could, was almost, I was mistaking them for being one and the same. And, and God, godliness is not the same as virtuous living. Godliness is the motivation and the why behind the choice to live virtuously. And so to really get there, the Lord just took me back through the original language in the Greek. Um, the word is euspia, Strong's number 2152, and, and that word um, is translated piety. And piety in its original, in the, in the Hebrew, is really the idea of devotion based on love. So, um, so to recognize godliness as piety or devotion, uh, now, I, now I see that in, that in that moment of decision, when I'm, when I'm restraining the flesh and when I'm controlled and I have knowledge of what the word of God says to do and I have committed to living virtuously, the why behind making the right choice is godliness. It's my devotion to God or my love for God or my piety towards God that compels me to make the right choice. Does that make sense? So what's the why? It's the motivation. It's the fuel. Make sense? So... Um, So this is how cool God is, and, and um, this is what leads me to the single point that I'm to teach on today. It comes from a text that Nick sent me, and um, I, think, I think he sent it to me either Thursday morning or Friday morning, but as soon as you sent it, the Lord started me down a remembrance of a study I did, oh, am I getting, of a study I did about a year ago, two years ago maybe. Um, and he brought me back to it because of what you texted me and, and um, it provided for me this, a, 
a point of clarity that I, that I feel like is super important for really recognizing and understanding what godliness means biblically as opposed to what often gets put in this category. So, um, so let, me, let me make this statement again. Um, when, when we are at a crossroads choice happening throughout our day, throughout our life, constantly over and over again, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna come to moments where we have a decision to make. One decision will align us with God's word and God's ways, God's commandments and, and his will, and we will choose obedience. Another um, choice will be disobedience and counter to all the things I just mentioned. What fuels the choice to make the right choice, or what fuels the decision to make the right choice is our piety towards God, or our devotion to God, or our love towards God. Okay? So um, Nick texted me, and, um, and he referred to, or he referenced a scripture that basically sounds like God instructing his people to take his law or his commandments and write them on their forehead. All right, and, and his text was funny because he took a picture of his Bible picture and he highlighted that verse and then he said, uh, who's ready to get a face tattoo with me? And, um, and, and here's the truth, dude. I'm so, I don't know if that was a spirit-led thing or if you were just being funny or what, what, what but God used that. I, I was literally on it all day long. That the, he just took me, and, and again, I did a study on this one time, and he just, like how the Holy, the Holy Spirit says, um, he will remember, you will remember things that I've taught you. He will bring remembrance of things that I've taught you. So as soon as you sent me that text, I was like, God just said, this is, this is important. And um, in the study was, um, interestingly enough, about our foreheads and about all of the um, specific instruction regarding foreheads. I don't know if you, those, those of you that have been here for a while, if you remember this study, but I've, I've taught on this before. Um, but we're going to go back and look at a few verses just so you don't think I'm crazy. Um, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read, we're going to read five old, old Testament, and I'm going to even say specifically five old covenant references to foreheads. All right. So, um, Lulu, you're going to read Exodus 13, six through 10. Lizzie, Exodus 13, 14 through 16. Jackson M, Exodus 28, 36 through 38. And then uh, Noah, you're going to read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Colio, 16-year-old. Sometimes I just rename people. That's, that's biblical too, by the way. No, Lulu's Lacey. Yeah, that's my nickname for Lacey. Uh, Cole, you're going to read Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 25. Now, at, or Coco. I like Colio. 
It's kind of like Coolio, but it's Colio. It's a little more gangster. Okay, so we're looking for commonalities between these texts. And I'm going to make it really awkward. When you're reading, please stand up and do it very loud. Very awkward, I know. So awkward. Yep. Lacey, you're first, please. This is first one is Exodus chapter 13, verses 6 through 10. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you and all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Okay, so obviously instruction, specific instruction regarding the Feast of Unleavened Bread and why we do the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it's a memorial, it's a remembrance, it's a reminder. And in this text, it says specifically, the reminder shall be where? The sign shall be where? On your hand, and as some translations say, in between your eyes, others say on your forehead. All right, next is 13, 14 through 16. Amen. What is it about the forehead? Jackson, Exodus 28, verses 36 through 38. Now we're going to be talking about the priestly garb. Amen. What's the sign say? Holiness to the Lord. Now there's a face tattoo. That would be legit, wouldn't it? All right. Noah's got Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9.
Awesome. Thank you, sir. Last one is Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 25. So five, five verses, and there's probably more, specifically referring to the commandments of God being written on the forehead. Now, um, one of my favorite ways to teach legalism comes in Deuteronomy either 23 or 24. Legalism versus obedience. Okay, it's a, it can be a fine line, and it's not a line we ever want to cross. All right, so in Deuteronomy 23 or 24, um, it speaks about the Lord desiring to dwell in the camp. The Lord desiring to dwell in the camp of the people. So the commandment is to, every time you got to poop, go outside of the camp, Dig a 10-inch deep hole, poop in the hole, cover it up. And the specific reason is because you must keep your camp holy. The why is because the Lord wants to dwell with you. Okay, so that is a written commandment in Scripture. Legalism would say, for Eric to be biblical, whenever I got to poop, I got to go out in the desert and dig a hole, poop in the hole, bury it with dirt okay that is legalism right legalism by saying you got to keep the letter of the law perfectly in order to somehow please god right paul speaks of both the letter of the law and the what spirit of the law right the spirit of the law is what's the purpose what's the reason what's what 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 why does why has god given us the law Okay, in a, in a commandment like that, the why, and really the why is never going to change. What's the why? God wants to dwell with you. So what's the thing that we got to do? Keep our camp clean. Well, we have toilets, right? So we don't have to go poop in, the, in a hole and cover it up because we have toilets. Yeah. It would be legalism to say I got to go poop in a hole to be biblical. No, to honor God by keeping his commandment, we got to keep our camp clean. Does everyone understand what I mean there? So that's a good way to understand legalism and some kind of self-righteous obedience to the letter versus spirit-filled obedience to the spirit of the law and seeing how those two differ. All right, so 
Does anyone in here believe that God actually was instructing his people to tattoo his, his law on their foreheads? I don't personally believe that. Okay, so if that's not what he was instructing them to do, what could be the spirit behind those instructions and others like it? What do you think he was talking about? What's that? Permanent where? On the forefront of your mind. Right? What is, what is more on the forefront than our foreheads? Right? So what I believe all of those instructions were really ultimately given to his children, the children of Israel for, was to keep his commandments on the forefront of their mind. To keep his achievements on the forefront of their mind. Keep everything that's happened in the story thus far on the forefront of your mind. Right? Why? Because God has always desired what? A people who are holy and set apart unto him. Right? Yeah. Hasn't he always wanted that? We're in the first covenant right now. What we know in the first covenant, although despite the fact that that is what he wanted, that first group of people only had their flesh. Right? The flesh that cannot love God, cannot submit to God, cannot keep his commandments, is always going to fight against it. Right? So the best that original group could muster is trying harder. Right? So to that group, that's really only option was trying harder. Would it not make sense and would this not be actually super valuable, beneficial instruction? Keep my commandments on the forefront of your mind. Write them everywhere you can see them. Read them as often as you can. Like it's just common sense, great instruction if you're trying to group, create in this group of people a better or a higher morality. Does that make sense? It was what was available to them. Trying harder to be a little better by walking in God's ways. If you want to do that, have them on the forefront of your mind. Always. Now, interestingly enough, in the New Covenant, there's absolutely no instruction to write the law of God on our forehead. There's no instruction for it. And why would that be the case? Because in the New Covenant, which is a more excellent ministry, built upon better promises, promises what first and foremost? A heart transplant complete with what? The law of God written on our heart. It no longer has to go on the exterior because it's on the interior. Second to a heart transplant is a what? Spirit transplant. I'm going to put my spirit in you and move you to walk in those ways. Right? So, so there is no continuity in the new covenant regarding the law of God being written on our forehead. But there is continuity regarding something going on the saint's forehead. So let's read those. Miss Naomi, Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Mr. Michael, Revelation 20, 1 through 4. 
And Miss Bonnie, Revelation 22, 1 through 4. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on, on Mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty, a hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters. And as the voice of a great thunder, I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. So the 144,000 will have the name of God on their forehead. Now, whenever scriptures repeat, show a common theme, show common instruction, it's always for purpose. Right? The old covenant always points to the new. The law always points to Christ. All types and shadows always point to greater, point to greater realities. Yeah. Right? So we have an old covenant that is over and over and over. The instruction to God's people is to write my laws on your forehead. Yeah. Not, I believe, actually tattoo them on your forehead. But what? Keep my commandments on the forefront of your mind. Right? In the, new, in the new covenant, we do not have that instruction repeated. We have a tweak to it. And the tweak is no longer write my law on your forehead. Now it is the name of God is going to be on your forehead. Next one. And, and also, Michael. Of verse 5. You said verse, I'm sorry. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they were are without fault before the throne of God. Oh, I'm sorry. I cut you off there. I'm That's sorry. Okay. No. All right, Michael 20, 1 through 4. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the, key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till a thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their forehead or in their hand. Where is, where is the mark of the beast? Forehead. All right, Revelation 22, 1 through 4. Miss Bonnie. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of the street and on either side of the river. 
twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. So what do you think this means? What do you think it means that the instruction of what to keep on the forefront of our minds transitions from the law to the Lord. Because it's really important. It's really important for understanding this. The, the new covenant, which is a more excellent ministry based on better promises, offers something that was not available in the first covenant in the first covenant the only thing that was available was behavior modification was fallen man trying harder by being knowledgeable of god's ways and trying harder to walk in them the instruction to that group is have my commandments on the forefront of your mind teach them to your kids Write them on your walls. It's all on the exterior. It's all about trying harder. In the new covenant, in which the law of God is written on our hearts, in which the spirit of God is put inside of us, this entire revelation is teaching us that within the new covenant, something greater is available. And the greater thing is what? It's a transformed people. It's not behavior modification anymore. And he's like circling me back to the understanding that if we ever engage the new covenant walk with a motivation to modify our behavior to be a little bit better by adding a law here and there, we're completely missing the point. Right, because uh, well, let's just um, let's just be clear. If we go through these four, the Mormons nail those four pretty well. Do they not? Right. You guys know Muslims don't eat pork. They got that one right. You guys know Seventh-day Adventists keep the Sabbath? They got that one right. Right? The Pharisees got a few things right too. But they were never born again. They never knew the Lord. So the only thing that they were committed to was the law itself. Right? The new covenant invitation is to be partakers in the divine nature. It's to become literally a brand new creation and to, and to experience ongoing sanctification or transformation into the very image of Christ himself. So in the old covenant, the law had to be central. In the new covenant, what's central? Christ. And the centrality of God is so perfect and pure and intimate 
and personal in the new covenant that it's no longer the ways of God that are written on our forehead. It's his name. It's so much, it's so much deeper and more intimate. It's so much more relational. We are, we are married to him. We are one with him in the age to come. And that's what we that's what we work towards. Looking for reflection of himself. Reflection of himself by his image bearers. So so this is what um, my good friend Chuck Spurgeon said about it. That I thought was just so beautifully said. He says, Holiness is better than morality. Because it goes beyond and it affects the heart of a man. Holiness is better than morality. It goes beyond it. Holiness affects the heart of a man. Holiness affects the motives. And holiness regards the whole nature of a man. Isn't that beautiful? To know his laws and to keep one every now and then because they're convenient or because that's our new identity or because my spouse told me to or because of this or because of that. That's behavior modification. Godliness is about devotion to God and love for God, that fuels our virtuous living. You recognize the difference? I pray you recognize the difference with me. That somehow, someway, God used your text to just remind me of. And he, and he took me through a remembrance of this study on foreheads. And I don't really remember what the, what the significant difference was. But as I went back and studied and I went back and read, I, oh yeah, in the old covenant, it was the law. The law was to be on the forefront of their minds. The commandments were central. But in the new covenant, Christ is central. And notice, glory to God, that the law is not done away with. Notice that the law is still firmly in place. Every jot and tittle until heaven and earth pass away. Notice that the law is still the definition of a virtuous life. Notice that the law is still what will be walked in by those who are being discipled by the Jesus of the Bible. But the law is no longer the point, and the law is no longer central. Christ is. So listen to this. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is what I believe the scriptures teach. And this is what I believe we will see as we get ready to read Matthew 23 together. When it's our love for God and our devotion to God and our piety towards God and our reverence for God, when that is the motivator 
and motivation and fuel for our obedience, that will produce a very specific fruit. But if our motivation for obedience is anything, anything other than our devotion to God, that obedience will cause a different fruit. Right? You get me? This whole category is about the source. The source for what? Why we do what we do. What are we talking about specifically here? Walking the most excellent way. Understanding it, doing it with control, and persevering as we do it. This is the source. This is the why. This is the motivation. And what I'm being taught is that if what fills this category is anything other than loving God, we're going to do it wrong. And it's going to produce a different type of fruit. A fruit that we are, in the scriptures, heavily warn us about. A fruit that Jesus had massive issues with. Tracking with me? This is about devotion. This is about love. This is about piety towards God. Something is going to fuel saints, especially in a congregation like this, something is going to fuel your obedience. Something is going to motivate your obedience, every one of us. When? In those moments of decision. When do those happen? All day, every day. When because we've been taught the word, we know what God says should be done. We have a choice to make. We're going to make a choice to obey. Glory to God. But now we're being shown why we make that choice to obey matters. And we'll actually specifically create, even though the obedience might be the same, it'll create one different type of fruit from the other. If it's anything other than loving God. We hearing? Okay, let's read Matthew 23 together. Matthew 23, as far as I can interpret it, gives us great examples of obedience to the law walked out without godliness. Godliness is what? Devotion to God. Godliness is what? Piety towards God. Godliness is what? Loving God. What God? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. The God of the Bible. The Pharisees did not love God. How do we know that? They did not know God standing right in front of them. They were at odds with God standing right in front of them. They rejected and ultimately murdered God standing right in front of them. Right? So they are the perfect example of pursuing a virtuous life without godliness. Are there other categories of pursuing a virtuous life than the Pharisees walked in? Probably. Other motivations? Otherwise? But one thing we know specifically about their why, it wasn't out of love for God. Not the God of the Bible. So what does obedience look like 
if it's not fueled by love for the God of the Bible. This is what we're getting ready to read. So let's read this out loud and just unpack it together, and then we'll be done. Someone want to start with just that first paragraph there? Okay. Last week I mentioned a very, very prominent, popular, very well-known pastor, very respected pastor named Anley Stanley is advocating that we literally unhitch the Old Testament. His reason why is because it's too hard to understand. It's got too many commandments that people disagree with, and it's coming in the way of people's faith. So the best thing to do with the Old Testament is do away with it. He literally was quoted as saying, the only commandment should be, thou shalt not keep the Ten Commandments. Okay, and then he adds, um, the only thing that we should do as it relates to the Old Testament are things that are repeated or, or kind of restated in the New Testament. Okay? Jesus literally repeated and whatever that right word is, recited, recollaborated, whatever, the entire Old Testament, right? He did it in Matthew 5 when he said every jot and tittle is in place until heaven and earth pass away. And guess what he just did right here? The exact same thing. How did he do that? He said, people that are sitting in Moses' seat and teaching, what are they teaching? The whole Testament, it's the only thing they have to teach. All of the commandments of God given in the Old Testament, that's what they're teaching. And he says, regarding what they're teaching, do it. So what did Jesus do? He just underlined the entire Old Testament, saying, yep, that's right. Why would he do that? Because he's God. He is the Old Testament. He is the law. He is the word. He does not change. He never will change. He would never change anything that was written in the Old in the new, ever. He's always only gonna repeat it, re-highlight it, reaffirm it, re-clarify it. That's exactly how he is starting this passage. Okay, so he's basically saying, regarding the law, it's the law. It's the truth. So this whole paragraph, or I'm sorry, this whole chapter is regarding the law of God given in the Old Testament. That's his opening shot. Everyone tracking with me? All right, continue, please. Angie. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Okay, how do we know that they are not teaching the law of God? What does 1 John chapter 5 say about keeping God's commandments? Not burdensome. Right? Matthew 5, or I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 5 says the, this is the love of God to keep his commandments and his commandments are what? Not burdensome. So whatever the Pharisees are teaching are burdensome, the commandments of God, not burdensome. So he's making a very clear distinction that what these guys are telling you to do is not God's ways. It's something other than God's ways. Something more difficult perhaps or more burdensome perhaps 
or more, they're just perverted, polluted, right? And this whole example is what? When obedience is walked out for any reason other than loving the God of the Bible, the fruit is going to be seen. Jesus is showing us the fruit. Okay, one of the first things he says is it ain't going to match. It's going to be slightly different. Okay, go ahead, Angie. Okay, so one very specific fruit was just mentioned regarding those who will seek a virtuous life or to be obedient or to walk in God's ways sourced by any motivation other than loving God. What's one of the fruits that's just been exposed? Want to be seen. Okay, just take notes of this, guys. Why is it important to recognize fruit, to know fruit, so we can recognize it in ourselves? This is, this is why Jesus goes to such clear lengths to expose things that the Pharisees and scribes did. He wants us to see the fruit. Why? So we can look down on the Pharisees and say, no, so we can see it in ourselves. This is the fruit of what? Seeking to keep God's ways for any reason other than loving God. If you seek to walk in God's ways for any reason other than loving God, one of the first things that you'll want is attention for it. Let's, let's continue. Someone else start in verse 13 for us. Interestingly enough, verse 14 in chapter 23 of Matthew has been erased from a number of Bible translations. This is about the third or fourth one that we have found just in our Bible study, just literally over the last few weeks. But yeah, the Bible's being changed. And it's not going to stop. And it's only going to increase. So whenever we find changes... In recent translations to scripture, I think it's really important that we go and see what's been eliminated, right? Because it's often like the main point. And the verse that's been eliminated is verse 14. Read that one again, Diane. Woe to you, 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. That's very, very important. What's another fruit exposed in this paragraph? Okay, they make four pretense long prayers. So back to fruit number one, we want attention. It's pride-based, right? Self-righteousness. What else is exposed in this? Yes, ma'am? Exactly right. Why, why do you suppose? Because I'm a Pharisee. Because I'm connected to God. To, to, to claim, listen to me, saints, to claim that we are connected to the God of the Bible and oppress, especially the widows and the orphans, receives greater condemnation. To claim a connection to the God of the Bible and do anything to hurt the least of these, greater condemnation coming. We're just looking at fruit. Fruit of what? Anyone that's attempting to walk in God's ways for any reason other than true love, true devotion, and true piety towards the God of the Bible. Verse 14 that has been eliminated from some texts. Unbelievable. Next paragraph. Go ahead, Diane. You're doing so good. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win. I never said that word right. Proselyte. Proselyte, which is a new convert. Right. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Okay, so what's going on in that one? What's going to be another fruit of someone who is claiming to be of God but having no relationship with that God? False converts, which means what? They're not converted, born again, belong to God. And they will, and they will seek to do what? Create more. Bring others along. It will be drawing men unto self. Yeah. Right? I can think of. I won't even go there. Okay, so, so when someone is deceived and walking this out, they will not seek to do it alone. They will not be okay walking it out alone. They will seek to take others with. We're, t we're looking at fruit. Fruit of what? Wrong, wrongly motivated obedience. Wrongly sourced obedience. You're going to want attention for it. You're going to draw attention to yourself for it. 
you will not care for the least of these. In fact, you'll take advantage and you will seek to bring others along with you. Go ahead, babe. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, is he obliged to perform it? Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift of the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and he who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by he, excuse me, by him who sits on it. What do you think that paragraph's about? Or what do you receive from that paragraph? Yep. To me, it shows two things. There's, there's an attempt to assign weight and value that's sort of connected to God but it's ultimately placing value entirely on the things of this world. That's, that's what I see by it. This person is, is basically saying it's all about money. That's what I'm reading. The, the swearing by the money in the temple actually carries more weight than the temple. Caring by, swearing by the gift on the offering carries more on the altar, carries more weight than the altar. Right, it's, it's going to be seen of those that are trying to walk this out without godliness. Their value system is going to be off. It's still going to be sort of connected to God, but at the heart of it, at their heart, the real value is going to be on the things of this world. That's just one. That's sort of one thing that I'm getting from that, Michael. What else? Exactly. Yep. Even if it's one degree off. Absolutely. Yep. Notice, speaking of one degree off, many would say having the law of God on the forefront of our mind would be a great thing. Like you get a lot of credit for that. You get a lot of church pats on the back for that. You get a lot of Facebook likes for that. It's one degree off. Because you can have the law of God on the forefront of your mind all day long. And, and if you're missing this, you're totally missing the point. And I'm totally missing the point. So often these are not going to be super stark differences in fruit. It might be one degree off. He's not missing the temple by very much by saying the gold of the temple. Small difference that makes all the difference. Go ahead, babe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, 
justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. What's the fruit in that one? Could be. Yep. Exactly right. A form of godliness, but deny his power. Right. So those. So that fruit will be very specifically picking the commandments that make you look the best. You know, if you're a Pharisee and you say, I'm so pious towards God that I tithe off the mint that I harvest, that's how good I am, that's how devoted to God I am, and in the background you're stealing a widow's house. What are we looking at? The fruit of obedience minus love for God. Can you have that? A hundred percent, guys. Is this a very slippery slope and easy trap to fall into? Yes. Once you get your head around obedience and God's commandments matter and walking virtuously is the foundation of partaking in his divine nature, now we got to go to what's our source? What's our motivation? Like literally where the rubber hits the road when that moment of decision comes up and I either got to go right or left. I know the word says go right. It's not enough to just go right. If you're going right because you have a commitment to the law, you could do it for the entirely wrong reason. If you go right because you love God and revere him, and are devoted to him in every way, the fruit's going to be right. The fruit's going to look different. You hear me? Go ahead, babe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you You're getting into that. Hypocrites. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish. But inside, they are full of exhortation and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first, cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be, also, may be clean also. Okay, so this is right in alignment with every other thing that we've talked about. It's all a show. It's all for looks. It's all to be seen. It's all for self. You guys remember last week when we, when we read that second Peter passage that talked about the opposite of godliness, right? A lack of godliness was what? Self-willed and basically devotion to self. So can you walk in God's ways out of a complete devotion to self? Absolutely. And it's going to come out in how you, it's going to come out in the fruit, and one of the specifics, fruit, it makes sense when you read it, but, but let's be super clear. It'll be a show to be seen. And it will not likely 
manifest in private when no one is looking. That's why recognizing our, our you know, unseen life is so critical. Recognizing what we do when no one is watching is so critical. Go ahead, babe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! <laughs> For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Keep going. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you... Build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that you may come all the way, that, excuse me, that on you may come all righteousness, bloodshed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Bershishubarha, okay, exactly. <laughs> whom you yeah. murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What was he prophesying about in that final paragraph there? To the ones that said, we would never do to the prophets what our forefathers did to the prophets. What was he prophesying they would do? To who? And? The apostles. All of which were killed by this same generation for the most part. So, so, um, yes, please. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See? Your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Chapter 23, I recommend and encourage each of us to spend more time in. Why? Because it's incredibly valuable to recognize the fruit that comes when godliness is not in place. Yeah. Everything on this list is critical. Everything must be in place for us to partake in the divine nature. Godliness can be a very deceptive one and easy to miss. And we got to recognize the fruit. It will lead to a discussion that we'll have in a short week, maybe two, to how do we know if we love God? How do we know if we have love for the God of the Bible? How do we know if we are pious towards the God of the Bible? And guess what's next uh, coming up on our list?
And that, I don't know if we'll talk about it quite next week, but we will talk about it shortly. Yes, ma'am. I was almost thinking when you were talking on the way, it's not behavior modification, it's nature transformation. Exactly, exactly right. Because too often we, I know I heard the, the thing, well, you know, we're just humans, it's our human nature. Yeah. And so I'm why that just, as you're talking, that's how it's reworded for me, it's a nature transformation. Yep. We don't, we don't have human nature if we're born again. That's not true. We do have human nature if we're born again, but we have access to a new nature. And we're being discipled and trained in walking in that new nature. The foundation of that will be a virtuous life. God gets to define what that life is. It will require self-control and perseverance, but most importantly for today's teaching, it will be sourced and fueled and motivated by no other thing but love for God. Amen. So be it. Yes, ma'am? No, I, I, I agree. Oh, agreed. Father, we just say yes and amen to your word, your truth, your will, your spirit, your kingdom come. And for this specific teaching, every word of it that was truth and from you, we pray would take root in our hearts and bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.